0: If you've got your Bibles this morning, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. We're in the second message in this series, so let's stand as we open the Word of God together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, last week we introduced the series called The Difference. Uh, the problem at the Church of Corinth is people couldn't always see the difference. They weren't living the difference, so to speak. Uh, and so as we study this wonderful letter, this book of the Bible, and we supplement it with some passages from 2 Corinthians along the way, I pray that we'll learn to see the difference, the change that God should be making in our lives and has made. Look at verse 10 with me. Last week we looked at the first nine verses, so let's begin reading with verse 10. Uh, We'll read through verse 25, and then I'll make some comments also on, on 26 and following at the conclusion of the message. But it says, Now I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all say the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be united with the same understanding and the same convictions. Uh, For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers, by members of Chloe's household, that there are quarrels among you. What I'm saying is this. Each of you says, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with, with Christ. Is Christ divided? Was it Paul who was crucified for you? Were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you had been baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with clever words, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. For to those who are Perishing, the message of the cross is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is God's power, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, I will set aside the understanding of the experts. Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? Can we get an amen on that? Hasn't God made the wisdom of this world foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believed through the foolishness of the message preached. For the Jews ask for signs, the Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Father, we are so grateful today to a God who can take the wisdom of this world and make it foolishness. And, and take everything that would cause the world to call us fools and demonstrate Your wisdom as we stand together in You. We pray this in Jesus' name. That You would speak to us through Your Word, by Your Spirit. Amen. Be seated talking about being Fools United this morning. Fools United. I'll explain that in just a moment, or you may uh, have seen that title within the text itself. The Dr. Tom Rayner, who is the head of uh, Lifeway Christian Stores, Lifeway Christian Resources, and, and all that they provide, uh, loves to do a lot of research, and, and with the research, find out where the church is and what the greatest needs are. Uh, Tom Rayner also sends out a lot of words of encouragement to pastors. Pastor Ben and I like to read Tom Rayner and, and, and see what kind of encouragement he provides from time to time. In uh, and, and one of his blog posts, he asked for folks to send in the silliest things that churches have ever fought over, that churches have ever had arguments about and, and, and political strife over within the context of a local church. And so he got a lot of these back, he said he got a lot of response, but he shared 25 of the silliest in in a recent blog, the silliest things that church leaders have ever, or church members have ever fought over, And, and I picked not all 25, but some of those I wanted to share with you. And when you hear these, you're going to think, man, that is so ridiculous, I can't believe that anyone has ever had division over such things. One of the first ones he listed was that a church had a church argument over the length of the worship leader's beard. I thought that was interesting. Our, our worship leader just grew a beard. And, and, and Pastor Ben and I were so proud that he could, and so we're not there going to ask him to shave it yet. The length of the worship leader's beard. The, the, there was one church that had a petition to have all the staff members clean shaven. Might be in a little bit of trouble even this morning. Not as much trouble as I'm with my wife for wearing jeans today. Y'all will forgive me of for that, right? Anger over the Lord's Supper broke out in one church. <laughs> the Lord's Supper, imagine that. Because someone accidentally purchased cran grape instead of just pure grape juice. I'm sure, the Bible confronts that somewhere. A church had a split over whether or not they should use the little bit of property remaining to build a playground or a cemetery. I think you should decide if you want to reach kids or die. Um, <laughs> isn't that true? You're going to reach kids or die as a church. A um, church had a, a major fight in a business meeting over the clock being removed from the sanctuary. I imagine where the pastor probably stood on that one. Um, One church had a 45-minute argument in a business meeting discussing the purchase of a filing cabinet, whether it should be three drawers, four or five, or tan or brown. One church had two lengthy business meetings because of arguments over the type of weed eater they would purchase. Someone wrote in to Dr. Rainer and said, we actually had a fuss at our church years ago on whether or not we should allow people to bring deviled eggs to the church fellowship. After all, that's of the devil, right? Deviled eggs to the church fellowship. Wow. Um, The last one I'll share with you. church had a major fight when it was suggested that happy birthday not be sung every single week at church. Some of you are afraid to laugh because you're like, I was in one of those churches every Sunday somebody's birthday, and so every Sunday we're going to sing happy birthday. Um, we'll sing that on Pastor Ben's birthday, but probably not at other times. Now, you, you listen to that and you say, that's foolishness. And you would never want to tolerate that kind of foolishness in the church as the people of god but there is a type of foolishness that we want to be known for the first half of the text we read talks about the foolishness we don't want to be known for but the second half talks about the right kind of foolishness the, uh, first corinthians chapter 4 and verse 10 we'll come back and put it this way we are fools for christ's sake In other words, we're willing to live our lives so passionately for the gospel, we're willing to be called fools for Christ's sake because we keep the main thing the main thing. We even wear that title fool, Paul would say, as a badge of honor. We are fools for Christ's sake. Pride and divisiveness, however, defines our world, does it not? Pride and divisiveness. Whether you're a fan of CNN or Fox News, turn on the news and you will see Pride and divisiveness defines the world in which we live. And if the church is called to be different, the body of Christ can't afford to be caught up in all of that pride and divisiveness. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case with the church at Corinth. And unfortunately, it's not always the case with other churches in our world today. So here's the question we're going to deal with this morning. How do we avoid getting caught up in that? How do you and I avoid getting all caught up in the pride and divisiveness and the things that can ultimately even kill a local church? Laying aside aside our pride and and our divisiveness, being willing to be united fools, fools for Christ's sake, is is that which can, can spare that. Now a lot of you are saying, man, that's silly stuff, and I'm so glad we don't deal with that at Trinity, but the Bible also says be careful when you think you stand lest you fall. We always have to be vigilant in our lives about pride and divisiveness. If uh, we could be a fly on the wall in any of our homes, we would see that we all struggle probably from time to time with pride and divisiveness. And so I want us to look at two convictions, two convictions that I believe the church will make a priority if we're going to avoid all the pride and divisiveness. If, If we're going to avoid the wrong kind of foolishness, and be known as fools for Christ's sake, we're going to embrace these two convictions. And here's the first one this morning. Right out of the first half of this text we read, it's the ministry of the church must be undivided. The church must be together. There's this strong plea for unity in the passage that we read, starting with verse 10. Paul's crying out for unity. I think probably in the back of his mind, he's thinking of Psalm one, where it says how good and how pleasant it is when the brethren dwell together in Unity. Unity, coming together. It doesn't mean that we're all alike. It doesn't even mean we're all in the same place. Unity, coming together in Christ. And so he tells them that the disharmony that's taking place had to stop. And so what he said in verses 10 and 11 are common in all of his letters. I urge you, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, our there, so he's saying these are Christians People who call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ, that you all say the same thing. Let's be in agreement here that there be no divisions among you. Be united with the same understanding of the same conviction. It's been reported to me, the folks from Chloe's house, there are quarrels among you. In Philippians, Paul's writing to the church at Philippi. And in, in the church at Philippi seemed to be a little bit more united than this church, and he was thanking God for their unity, but he also said in, in Philippians chapter two, verses three and four, "Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. We have to lay that pride aside. Do nothing out of rivalry. You're not competing with your brothers and sisters in Christ, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. It's putting other people first, their preferences. First, those things that aren't necessarily revealed in Scripture, just the preferences of life and and how we do things, put others first. Matthew 6.33 says, put the kingdom of God first. There's no room for pride in any of that. See, The the fighting and the quarreling was a sign, listen to this, of spiritual immaturity. The, The arguing over things that just simply didn't matter was a sign of spiritual immaturity. Every one of those areas that I read a moment ago that Tom Rayner shared, for that to take place among the family of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a sign that they are either very spiritually immature or lost. Fighting over those kind of things, spiritual immaturity. Listen to what Ephesians 4 says. Why bring the Holy Spirit into this, right? It's spiritual immaturity. In Ephesians chapter 4, before he gives the qualifications of the pastor down in verse 11, look back at verse 3. He says, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. You've heard that before in the King James, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Keeping the, diligently, it means you've got to work hard to do it, keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The peace of, That binds us. That's got to be a priority. That's got to be a conviction in the church. You can ask the staff who have come on board here at Trinity or other leaders that I've talked about. I've sought in my heart to make this a top conviction at Trinity Baptist Church. Above all else, do all that you can to protect the unity. So the staff has to be unified. We have to be communicating with one another, enjoying life together, loving one another. And I can tell you, church, there is a wonderful, I'm telling people all the time, there's a wonderful chemistry with the, with the staff and the leadership of this church. I look forward, I bet only one out of ten pastors will be able to say this, I look forward to meeting with our deacons tonight. Because there's a shared vision, there's a kindred spirit, there is a unity. It says diligently protect that. Then great responsibility falls on This guy, as I look down at verse 11, and God personally gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, and in the the Greek language there's a compound word there, pastor-teacher, that I believe is my calling and my responsibility, that of the pastor-teacher. What's he called for? Verse 12, for the training of the saints in the work of the ministry. What kind of ministry? Well, the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into mature, into a mature man with the stature measured by Christ's fullness. My job as a pastor is to lead the body of Christ to a place of spiritual maturity through the Word of God, through making disciples, through networking ministry, not only through our deacons, through our teachers, through our kids' workers, through our staff as we network ministry so that we all might grow and become more mature in our faith and avoid all those things that would cause disharmony through spiritual immaturity. And obviously that's not all on the pastor because all of us have to cooperate with the process. We all have to be in cooperation with what the Spirit of God is doing in our lives. One thing that Tom Rainer pointed out when he said a lot of churches, before they have a big blow-up, before they have a big split, watch out, there will be a a lot of people who uh, are members of the church that never wanted to come to church that will start showing up to business meetings. Well, you only get about two shots a year around here, but some churches, you know, that's kind of the case. You're like, where were they at in worship? They showed up for the business meeting. He says, that's kind of a scary moment, kind of a scary thing that can happen in some of these churches. We're to be under the Word of God and the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God and, and, and having the Word of God in our homes and in our hearts. James chapter 4 and verse 1 says, What causes wars among you? Isn't it the lusts? Isn't it the passions in your own hearts? is it you wanting what you want and having things your way? Isn't that what causes all kinds of, see, it's pride, it's disharmony. In verse 13, he begins to identify the problem until we reach, I'm sorry, let's go back to 1 Corinthians here, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13. It says, is Christ divided? Obviously. That's a rhetorical question. He's not. Was it Paul who was crucified for you? Obviously not. Were you baptized in Paul's name? Hopefully not. I thank God that I baptized none of you. This issue of baptism comes up so that no one can say uh, you had been baptized in my name. He didn't want them worshiping him. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. There's this priority of the gospel in all of this. We're going to get to that with a second point, the priority of the gospel. The ministry of the church was to be undivided, and now they're arguing about religious or, or, or what we might call ritualistic preferences, namely uh, baptism. Now, many scholars believe this is a theoretical argument, that that wasn't really the main argument, the whole I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos or that sort of thing, that it was really saying that uh, there are a lot of other things that they were being clickish about or arguing about. Here he's... Confronting that clickishness, if you will. We'll say a word about that as well in a moment. The ritual he uses here is the one of baptism. And by the way, let me remind you what Paul is not saying in this passage. He is not saying at all that baptism isn't important. It's just that they were making the ritual of baptism, the mode of baptism, the be-all, end-all. Well, I was baptized... By Apollos. So I was baptized by Cephas, or Peter. I was baptized by Paul, and he's the one that really tells those other ones how it kind of goes. And They were all kind of picking their identities. And then there's always that one in the crowd. You ever been in that moment where you're telling the old stories, telling life experiences, and, and every time you think that, man, I just kind of want to share something I experienced, rather than listening, they're waiting to one-up me and so there was that person in the crowd that was saying, oh, okay, well, I'm of Jesus. And so that they weren't, he, Paul wasn't saying that's a good thing in this passage. He was saying they were just saying that to kind of one-up the other guys. Everybody was trying to act like they were superior to everybody else. And when we get to the place, uh, the discussion in 12 and 14 of spiritual gifts, he's going to rebuke that mentality of uh, spiritual superiority. Well, we're better than everybody else. And, and so they, they have these factions, these kind of cliques with whom they're kind of but he's not saying that baptism is not important. Baptism, as he will describe later, is our being identified with Christ. It's a picture. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament church, there was never uh, an example of someone who would come to faith in Christ and, and avoid baptism. And so baptism was a picture outwardly of what it, the real thing that had already happened inwardly. It was a picture of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so baptism was important. But with all due respect to Carrie Underwood, it wasn't that something was in the water. (laughs) It was that there was something in the power of the gospel. It was something in the blood of Jesus Christ that had changed their life. And, And so they were making the religious ritual side of it the major point. And it was a point of division among them, causing problems and it could kill a church. Someone one discovered the fossil remains of two saber-toothed cats. And, and what was interesting about these two saber-toothed cats that were together, in the fossil remains, there was still the teeth of one lodged into the hind leg of another so deep that it became very apparent to those who made this discovery and the scientists that looked at this, it became very apparent that what had happened with these saber-toothed cats is that one had so locked into the other one that it got its teeth stuck. And not only did it take the life of the one it bit into, but it took the life of the one that did the biting. So that's how a lot of times Christians die off in their faith and churches die off. We're, we're biting and devouring one another, as Galatians says. I remember the story of uh or the cartoon that charles schultz did with uh, linus and and lucy and and lucy wants the remote control and linus is not going to not the remote she wants to be in charge of the tv uh, what they're watching and and linus wants nothing to do with that but he's kind of asking you know what's going to stop me and, and 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 lucy basically says you see these five fingers well, they, not, they might not look like much, Linus, but when these five fingers come together, they form a force to be reckoned with. And so Linus gives up the TV. And as Linus is walking off, he says something like this. Looking at his hand, he says, why can't you guys get together like that? <laughs> Sometimes that's the body of Christ. Why can't we come together to be a force to be reckoned with. Sometimes we're so divided, we get our eyes off the mission. Now, cliques form in churches over all kinds of things, and among active members of Trinity Baptist Church, it's probably not going to be about whether or not I or Pastor Ben of one of our deacons or somebody's dad baptized you. I've just So far, I haven't heard a fight about that. It's not that one of us are more anointed than the other. I haven't heard anybody arguing over such foolishness as that. But we can all fall into a cliquish mentality if we're not careful. If we're not careful, we can be divided by socioeconomic status. The church should always demonstrate that the people of God aren't going to be divided by socioeconomic status. That we are family. We are family in Christ, and we can demonstrate that we're not going to be divided like the rest of the world the church should demonstrate that it doesn't matter your ethnic background we're not going to be divided the church should the church should be able to demonstrate that it, it doesn't matter if you are uh, public school private school or homeschool. we're not going to be diva- divided and we're not going to let our kids our our, our students be divided because of that People ask me about that from time to time. And and one thing I always point out, I said, you realize um, Moses was a public school kid, led the people of God out of Egypt after he had gone to the Egyptian school district there under Pharaoh where they didn't teach about Yahweh or anything like that. But God still used him and he did great things for God. He was where God had placed him and called him to be at the time you realize that Samuel went to the Christian school? Not only did Samuel go to the Christian school, Samuel went to the Christian boarding school. And in that Christian boarding school, there was even hypocrisy among the leadership, but he was where God called him to be. Learning what God called him to learn. So there are folks here that are called to be a part of that for the equipping of something that God has for them. you realize that best we know that King David was probably homeschooled? And he became the greatest king. Well, a homeschool kid can never become president. Sure, they can. He became the greatest king today, according to Israel's history, that they've ever had. And so let's be careful. If we're not careful, if we're not prayerful, if we're not walking in the Spirit, we can start to beat it. Well, you know, we don't want to hang out with a public school crowd. We don't want to hang out with a private school crowd. You know, those homeschoolers, they kind of isolate their kids. Well, not the Trinity homeschoolers. They let them hang out with some of these guys. (laughs) But we can become so cliquish. And and if we're not, we can act like, well, my way is the superior way. And I I challenge every parent, all the parents here, know the strengths and know the weaknesses of each. And by the way, they all, all approaches have their strengths and their weaknesses. Study that, know that, realize that ultimately it's not the government It's not even a Christian school. It's not Trinity Baptist Church. It's mom and dad who are responsible for the education of their kids, right? We work together and encourage one another and support one another and get behind whatever resources we incorporate. So I thank God we've got some of the best homeschoolers I've ever met in this church. I thank God we've got some awesome Christian school kids in this church. I thank God that we've got some public school missionaries and teachers and administrators in this church. I pray that we all just stop long enough to pray about it and see a sense of calling and never, never let that divide us. You say, are you preaching that because you've seen No, no, not at all. As a matter of fact, I'm grateful for the way that we haven't let that divide us, and I pray that all three of those areas will be prosperous among you. It could be other areas, like Age. It could be when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, this is where I might not win friends and influence people, but when we get to chapter 8, we're going to see if we flaunt what we perceive to be our freedoms in Christ before others, then it can bring division in the church. And so, by not loving as we should and putting God's ways first, we can get in trouble. So, let's not get our eyes off the mission, let's not allow any spirit of disharmony to emerge in the community of faith number two here's the second conviction in the last half of this text we read the message of the cross must be undiluted the message of the cross there is something we can rally around there is something that we must never compromise and that's the message of the cross we can't water down the gospel just to get along with people we can't water down the gospel just to be politically correct so or to those who are perishing, verse 18 says, the message of the cross. And by the way, how does he segue into that? Let's, let's go back at verse 17 again. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, not with clever words so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. It's the message of the cross that's changing lives. Or to those who are perishing, verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it's God's power, foolishness. The Greek word there is morino. You get our word moronic, moron from that. It's foolishness to this world. That word means to be absurd, to be wildly unreasonable, or according to the world, even laughable. Oh, that's just, you, you still here in the 21st century, it's 2016, you still believe that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone because he went to a cross that is foolishness. And he quotes Isaiah here and says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the understanding of the experts. And there are those who deem themselves wise and as experts who would say this is ridiculous, the message of the cross coming together around that. And he does so, verses 20 through 25 that we read a moment ago, he explains he destroys the pride of those who cling to the wisdom of this world. Where, Where's the philosopher? Where's the scholar? Where's the debater of this age? Most of us can answer that. Well, the university where I attended. (laughs) The college where I go. Sometimes even the high school I attend. Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? Since in God's wisdom, the world did not know. God, through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. The Jews want signs. And if we could just have signs and wonders to prove God. We talked about that this morning in our life group just a little bit. If we could just have more signs and wonders, we'll believe. And it, Obviously, they saw the Red Sea part, and they still didn't always believe. But the Greeks' wisdom, man's wisdom. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block. In the Greek, it's skandalon. It's a scandal to believe this. Scandalized, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks or the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, God's weakness is greater than, stronger than human strength. Scandalous you know what you're going to get a steady dose of in the world as as we move from this point forward. I've noticed something lately, and that is we're getting past moral relativism. Moral relativism, when the predominant view in America was a a Judeo-Christian ethic, there were people crying out for more of a, a moral relativistic tolerance in our world. What may be right for you may not be right for me, and what may be right for me may not be right for you. Everybody do what's right in your own eyes. Believe what you want to believe unless you can't. We all just get along and believe what we want to believe and coexist and everything else. Moral relativism. Do what you want to do. Believe what you want to believe, and we're all right. You know that's quickly slipping away. Now that that the Judeo-Christian ethic doesn't kind of provide the majority view anymore, and certainly... Uh, nine out of ten of the professors in our state universities wouldn't embrace it. They're not saying what may be right for you may be right for me, and what may not be right for me may be right. Moral relativism is fading away, and they're saying there are absolute truths, and and, and man's wisdom will tell you what it is. And they're not saying we're just as right as the Christians anymore. They're saying we're right, and the Christians are dead wrong. We're right, and, and those who believe the Bible are foolish idiots as a matter of fact one of the leading debaters today sam harris and i like to listen to these guys i like to listen to the leading atheists and what they're saying on our public universities i like to know how to equip people to defend that i like for our students to hear that so that they know how to build an argument how how to do what peter said that we're to do give an apologetic a defense of our faith a reason for the hope that is within us but here's what's going on today. I want you to watch this video. And this is a debate happening with William Lane Craig at Notre Dame University, a famous Catholic school. And I want you to listen to just three minutes of a clip of Sam Harris. And then we'll wrap this up.
1: Now, I'm obviously not saying that all the Dr. Craig or all religious people are psychopaths and psychotics. But this, to me, is the, is the true horror of religion. Okay, it allows perfectly decent and sane people to believe by the billions what only lunatics could believe on their own. If you wake up tomorrow morning thinking that saying a few Latin words over your pancakes is gonna turn them into the body of Elvis Presley, you have lost your mind. But if you think more or less the same thing about a cracker and the body of Jesus, you're just a Catholic. And I'm not the first person to notice that it's a, it's a very strange sort of loving God who would make salvation depend on believing in him on bad evidence. Okay, it's, it's I mean, if you lived 2,000 years ago, there was evidence galore. I mean, he was just performing miracles, but apparently he got tired of being so helpful. Okay, and so now we, we all inherit this very heavy burden of the doctrine's implausibility. And, 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 and the effort to square it With what we now know about the cosmos and and what we know about the all-too-human origins of Scripture becomes more and more difficult. And and it's not just the generic God that Dr. Craig is recommending; it is is God the Father and Jesus the Son. Christianity, on Dr. Craig's account, is the true moral wealth of the world. Well, I hate to break it to you here at Notre Dame, but Christianity is a cult of human sacrifice. Christianity is not a religion that that, that, that repudiates human sacrifice. It is a religion that celebrates a single human sacrifice as though it were effective. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, John 3.16. The idea is that that Jesus suffered the crucifixion so that none need suffer hell, except those, those billions in India and billions like them throughout history. Okay, this is, this, is, this is a stride. This doctrine is a stride, a contemptible history of scientific ignorance and religious barbarism. We, we come from people who used to bury children in, under the foundations of new buildings as offerings to their imaginary gods. I mean, just think about that. There, in, in vast numbers of societies, people would bury children in post holes People like ourselves thinking that this would prevent an invisible being from knocking down their buildings. Okay. These are the sorts of people who wrote the Bible. Okay. If there is a, a, a less moral, moral framework than the one Dr. Craig is proposing, I haven't heard of it. All right,
0: you can stop it right there. Now you say, well, why would you show something like that in church on a Sunday morning? because I try my best to help parents and grandparents understand what the future generations are going to be facing. And that's what they're going to be facing. That's what the people in this world who do not accept the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Word of God are embracing. And they look at the message of the cross, as he said, and they say, that is ludicrous. That is ridiculous. And they act like, as Sam Harris did in this video, he acts like he's saying something new. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. They were telling us that 2,000 years ago, that the concept of an atonement, that Jesus Christ would lay down His life for the sins of the world, that whosoever believed in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. They've always said that was ridiculous, that's ludicrous, and that's foolish. That's why it's scandalous. So we need to know and be ready to respond to that. Now those same folks will go watch a movie in the 1990s like Armageddon and Bruce Willis. We'll, we'll, we'll drill, Barry, I didn't know you could do this, but drill like with a well rig, you know, I think he had an oil well rig, but anyway, drill to the middle of an asteroid and, and drop himself down in there and, and detonate a, a nuclear bomb and blow himself up, but in giving his own life, save the world from an asteroid, and they won't look at that movie and say, that's a ridiculous theme, they'll say, man, that's some awesome science fiction, But when Jesus Christ dies for your sin and for my sin, because the wrath of God was on you and the wrath of God was on me, and they say, well, that's absurd that a God who is all-loving and all-knowing and all-powerful would allow His wrath to be on people. It's because, as Jesus told the Pharisees, you don't understand the Scriptures or the power of God, the justice of God and holiness of God. And when we begin to say, well, if I were God, I wouldn't do things that way, Then we're falling into the same trap of Adam and Eve and the same trap of Lucifer himself, and we say, well, I'll make myself like the Most High. Their arguments, as a matter of fact, William Lane Craig, who was debating Sam Harris, would really come back and blow him out of the water. But the students, when they were hearing Sam Harris, are thinking, man, this guy's really putting Christians in their place, showing them how foolish and ridiculous, and we're going to have to contend with that. The message of the cross can't be undefiled. We've got to be willing to be called fools for Christ's sake. So he deals with their pride, but listen... He deals with our pride as well. He not only confronts the pride of the unbelievers, He confronts the pride of the believers in these final verses. Look at verse 26. Brothers, consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many noble birth. Instead, God has chosen the world's foolish things to shame the wise. Why did God save me? to shame the wise. <laughs> God has chosen the world's weak things to shame the strong. God has chosen the world's insignificant and despised things, the things viewed as nothing, so He might bring to nothing the things that are viewed as something, so that no one can boast in His presence. But from Him you are in Christ Jesus, who for us became with the wisdom of God, as well as the righteousness, sanctification, and redemption order that as it is written the one who boasts must boast in the Lord sometimes God has chosen in his wisdom to do things the way he does things so that our only boasting can be in by the grace of God by the power of God God was at work in my life that's a message now listen all these peripheral things what color is the carpet going to be how big is a building going to be Was it cran grape or pure grape juice? (laughs) All of these other things that we can argue about. How loud was the music? Was it too loud? Was it too quiet? Was it too contemporary or too traditional? All those are secondary issues. But there is something that can divide people, and that's the message of the cross. You never compromise the message of the cross. You never dilute the message of the cross. And if the message of the cross ever stops to be the center of what we're singing about and preaching about, then we're going under. We can never compromise the message of the cross. There's no other message that brings salvation and brings real life, true life. So know it. Defend it. And by all means, parents, grandparents, equip the next generation to know it, love it, defend it, and live it by the grace of God. The Gospel, the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, that's where we draw the line. Would you bow your heads with